what I figured out was I'm not going to be the person that comes up with the next thing that fixes climate change or systemic racism or any of these like big, big issues. But what I'm really good at is helping the people who are doing that to strategize their way forward, to give them the communication tools that they need to move forward and to help them when it comes to fundraising or talking to the right people in the right way to get that messaging clear. So I realized the thing that can help me scale my impact is by helping others scale theirs. This is why I love stories. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. We're currently living in a time with an endless number of channels to get your message across to your target audience. Therefore, the question of how to spread a message is a lot less important than the question of what message do we want to spread? It used to be that the media dictated how you or your business told their story. But thanks to social media and pretty much free distribution, you are now the media. That means it's up to you to craft, share, and live by your own narrative. The story you tell must not only resonate with your target audience, but also be able to work across mediums, cultures, even contexts. Some call it storytelling, others call it public speaking, but my guest today calls it performative speaking. He's a mostly retired trial lawyer turns teacher who has now helped hundreds of students from around the world to tell their stories. I'm pleased to welcome Robbie Crabtree to Shop of Mind. Robbie, welcome to the show. Hey, Stuart. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the chance to come on and chat with you and, and just excited to get after this. I want to start with a memory that I have of my own kind of world of public speaking. One of my proudest kind of public speaking moments was back in was back in high school for me. The way it worked was every English class got assigned their students to write a speech, and then they would say it in front of the 30 people in their classroom. And then the winners of each class then got to do it in front of like the whole school in an auditorium. And I remember like, I still could feel like my heart beating as I got up and did it in front of like 1200 people. And I was super nervous at the time, but now looking back, I can't believe how much of like a pivotal moment that was of realizing how important and a unique opportunity public speaking really can be. Are there, are there any particular speeches or presentations that you've given that kind of stand out as your proudest? You know, for, for me, the, the proudest moments were some of the big closing arguments that I gave as a trial lawyer, right? When I was representing, say, a child victim in one of the child abuse cases that I was handling when I was a prosecutor. You know, getting up and essentially being their voice for somebody who had been silenced for so long, those are the moments where at the end of those cases, when the, the child and the family and all of, you know, the people who are associated would come up and, and like kind of just thank you. And, and it, it's one of those feelings that's really strange because I don't really feel like I should have been thanked in that moment because they went through something horrible. And I was like, I'm just kind of doing my job. Like, you're the one who actually had to go through this. But those were the ones that that made me the proudest. And then on the flip side, when I actually did a little bit of defense work, uh, I had one client who was accused of murder and I didn't believe that he had done it. Like I believed he had killed his brother, unfortunately, and it was a tragedy, but I believed it was self-defense and I had to represent him. And I did the closing argument and I was trying to convince a jury 
to not give him a guilty verdict, to not send him to prison. And I'll never forget walking back when I sat down, my, my boss at the time, who was a very well-renowned big time lawyer in Dallas, uh, who had brought me onto the firm in large part for this case said, just turned to me and goes, that was the, the best closing I've ever seen. And as it ended up, the jury ended up coming back about six hours later and found him not guilty of murder. And seeing my client just basically break down and cry and all of his family cry as well, these like tears of joy, right? And relief. Those were the ones that were the most impactful to me because it wasn't just about what I got to do. It was about what I got to do for other people. And I think that's what's so powerful about speaking and really doing it uh, in a world-class way. Hmm. What makes for a really powerful closing argument? Yeah, so there's there's so much that goes into it. You know, the first piece that we start off with is understanding the emotion we want uh, the audience to feel, right? And in, in that case, my audience is a jury. And so I've got to figure out how do I want them to feel? And once I figure that out, then I've got to start figuring out how can I use delivery to, to basically bring that to life? How do I use persuasion principles? How do I use structure and framing? Like, what are the pieces that I can play around with as, as a speaker that will allow me to, to recreate that? And, and that's really what performance speaking is about, is this idea of finding our own personal experiences that we've lived and felt something so that we can then recreate it to our audience, right? And so in that murder case I just described, I used a scene from the West Wing. And granted, I don't have all the tools that a television show does, right? Like, I can't play music. I can't change lighting. But I can take what was going on in certain scenes and recreate those reverse engineer and figure out, oh, well, if I speak really slowly, if I take big deliberate pauses, if I speak very softly and intimately, like I can play around with these pieces to recreate it. And once you get the emotion right, everything just kind of flows from there. Mm. You use the word performative in this, in your kind of, you coined that as your own kind of way of teaching. Where did that word come from and why why did you choose that one? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the word performative, right, means relating to performance art which is really what I believe speaking is. I think speaking is always performance art. But the second piece of that is performative. Like if we look at the root performativity, actually means the ability for words to bring about change. And I think when we combine the ability for words to bring about change and performance art, that's really what great speakers understand. And it's, it's interesting because I kind of came up with this from like a, a history class I had taken in college about the metaphysical club where... A, it was like, I believe as William Jennings was actually talking about performative and like he was, was going into that and it triggered something when I was developing this term. And I was like, there's something here. Like I could feel it in my brain from my history degree back at Haverford college a long time ago. And all of a sudden I was like, there was like, there was this word, I know it, I know it. And I kept searching and I did a bunch of rabbit hole searches, you know, like metaphysical club and I was just trying to figure out. And then I finally came across and I was like, that's it. That's what my thing is. And then I basically coined it as what I do, it also sounds like persuasive speaking. It sounds like public speaking, but it's a little bit different. So all these pieces went into it. And I was like, it's just a really beautiful way to, to say what I believe we're doing. Yeah. And I like your point there about incorporating the best parts of other performance arts. I think that's hugely helpful in the context of this conversation towards marketing and, and message crafting and things like that, because don't just look at what other tech companies are doing. Like there have been people putting on plays and making movies and writing songs for hundreds of years before uh, people started kind of telling this same old tech stories. So to look at those stories and methods makes total sense to me. Yeah. Sometimes we get so like, we get laser focused. We, we lose sight of the forest because we get so stuck in the weeds and the trees. 
And, and I really do believe that if we're, you know, if it's marketing, if it's sales, if it's speaking, like, and these all tie together in, in all honesty, right? Like there, there is very little separation between a lot of these, these dynamics and, and these disciplines. But if we think about it, like if you go and see art at a museum and you go see uh, Picasso, you can use that as inspiration for like how you felt and recreate that to somebody else. Or like, you know, there's, there's books like old, old, like you can go, the fascinating thing is a quick kind of antidote to this. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, I've seen the mountaintop speech, which is the last speech he gave before he was assassinated the next day. And it's my favorite speech of his is a direct reference. He is taking from Moses in the Bible. That is literally what he is drawing upon. If we think about the Gettysburg address that is actually taken from a piece of like funeral oratory in ancient Athens. And yet, like, we forget that there's so many places to go and find inspiration. We just focus on like, well, I'm in tech, so I'm going to tell the same tech story. But like, go look out outside, go look at other things that have inspired people for generations. And you can get a whole new perspective and do something really cool and unique. You, you've talked about feeling. You've mentioned that word a few times already. What, what do you mean by that? So in... I think a lot of people, when they think feeling, they think like a specific emotion, like happy, sad, whatever it is. I, I like to think of feeling much more like it is a, an all-encompassing idea. So it's like vibe and mood and emotion, all these pieces. If we think about it, this is, again, why I love, I love music so much. And I try to point people to this. In fact, when I write speeches, I actually write musical notes into my speeches because I believe that what we say should sound musical. So there will be like actual cadence that I build into a speech that I'm, I'm writing for either myself or for a client, right? And so I think if we, when we think about feeling, right, if you listen to Tropical House, you feel very different than if you listen to death metal versus listening to some sort of pop music versus listening to a Mozart or a Chopin, right? Or Rachmaninoff, all these different, different composers make you feel differently. And if we think about that, if we think about the way music basically is all encompassing, it changes the way we're thinking, the way we're feeling. We can actually like, if we're, you're going for a super heavy lift, right? You're going to throw on something that makes you just want to like, like tear the, the barbell apart. So you can actually like, you know, lift the weight and be successful because it makes us feel something. It's, it's, it's deeper than just this idea of like, I'm happy. It is like an all encompassing thing that just consumes us. And when you get that feeling right to an audience, that's when you move them. They will do basically anything that you want them to because they have that feeling. And that's what moves people to make decisions, right? It's not logic. It's not reason. All those pieces are what they use to rationalize, but feeling is what they use to actually make the decision. So if we're going to kind of get tactical with this and turn, let's say let's, we're, we're in a commercial setting and we need to tell a story either for marketing or for sales, or if you're actually just shaking hands with someone and needing them to have this, like to agree with you. How do you incorporate that, the feeling when you're trying to tell your story? And, and, and maybe you can help us understand, like identify a feeling and then take it back to, okay, what words do I need to say to get to that feeling? Yeah, sure. So those are, are going to be different circumstances, right? Like an ad, you're going to put in a lot of time to develop it. And you're going to be like very clear on what you're trying to achieve. When you're meeting somebody, like if it's just like a chance meeting, it's a lot harder to come up with that on the fly. So there are, there are frameworks for like impromptu and extemporaneous speaking that you can have, but those are going to be different dynamics. So let's, let's focus on like the ad one where you yeah, really yeah. care. So the first question you're going to ask yourself is where is your audience right now? The second question is where do you want them to be at the end of it, right? We, we get basically these, these, two, these two blocks. 
Now we need to figure out how do we move them from where they are to where I want them to be. The bridge is the emotion that they need to feel to get there. So once we know what that bridge is and we've identified what we want them to feel at the end, that's when we start going internal. When have I felt this? When personally have I felt this feeling that I want them to have, right? And so when we define like that feeling, it can be, it doesn't need to be like one word. It's oftentimes a sentence or a string of sentences to describe this, right? I want them to feel empowered in their own voice to move forward and share their story, right? That to me is a feeling that I'm going to try to create. And, and there are some great ads that do this, right? And, you know, I think there's a number of Dove ads that do this really well. I think Nike does a really great job of this too, where people feel that empowerment to share their own vision, no matter what's going on. But if we think about that as a feeling, then we start saying, when have I felt that? What has made me feel that? Was it a high school baseball coach who inspired me to, to feel like I really had this power to step into a captain role and lead my team so that they would follow me? right? I might be able to draw on that. Okay. How did my coach do that? What did he use? What words, what phrases, what was his cadence? What were the pieces that he was playing around with? Or maybe it was from a movie. Maybe it's from a television show. Maybe it's a book, right? Maybe it's from my favorite book, Gates of Fire. This is why every person, like I know marketers, they have a swipe file, right? For great ads that they love. You should also have a swipe file for a personal inspiration list. Things that move you, make you feel different ways. Because what we're doing is we're figuring that out. When we figure that out, we can reverse engineer that now because we know, look, if this made me feel this way and I'm trying to get my audience to feel the same way, I just got to recreate what made me get here. And now you're speaking from a place of expertise and actual real experience. So it's a whole lot easier because now you're not dealing with this nebulous idea, this, well, I, I kind of know where I want them to go, but I don't know how to actually achieve that. Because if you felt it yourself, you know exactly what happened to get you there. So now you can recreate it. And that's where we, we really use inspiration, these other art forms to help us basically build that bridge for our audience because we're not working from a place of just like blind, blind trust or, or blind leaping. We're using our own knowledge base to build it. So once you've got that emotion pulled out of your back catalog of how you got there, you then start incorporating the elements that got you to that emotion in the first place. So to your example about being chosen as a captain for a baseball team, there was probably a moment where the coach pulled you aside and you felt nervous and you can kind of build a story arc around going from, oh shit, am I in trouble to, oh, actually, no, I'm being given responsibility and the weight that comes with that. 100%. And even the way, like I can remember how he did it, right? Like I can remember that conversation. I can remember the tone of his voice. I can remember the pacing. I can remember some of the words and phrases that he was using. I, I can, can remember like how I felt. And it was almost like this fatherly love of like, it's your turn to take the mantle, like go, right? It's a way that I can then recreate that to an audience to make them feel empowered. In fact, in, in what I teach, it is exactly what I do with so many of my clients who, who work with me because I am trying to not give them the way to do it. I'm not trying to give people a formula and say, go, go do it exactly how I would do it. I'm trying to give them ownership. I'm trying to give them a playbook. I'm trying to give them frameworks, principles so that they can use it. But that means I basically got to be like my coach and be like, you're the captain now. Go lead, go build this thing. You can do it. Like, I trust you. Like, I know you've got this. And, and you can use these, these past experiences we've had like, we don't have to recreate anything. That's kind of like, we're not creating from scratch. 
we're remixing, we're being Kanye West and we're building on top of the greats. And, and I think that that's just a beautiful way to think about uh, creating these sort of talks. Yeah, that is a great way of looking at it. You, the more I kind of research stories, I've started to to kind of understand a little bit more about some of these frameworks that are timeless and and tested. And you'll once you kind of see them, you can't unsee them. And then you'll start noticing them in books you read, and movies you watch, and TV shows you watch, and pretty much everything follows. Maybe there's maybe like twenty or thirty stories that exist. Are there any storytelling frameworks that you really enjoy using, or maybe your go to? So I mean. You just used one of the terms I love. I, I have a framework for go-to stories. I think that oh. those are the things that like every person just needs to have. Pro- like I tell people, develop one first. Like you should have one go-to story that when you deliver it, you know every single time it's going to hit. Every single time, no matter what what situation, like you deliver the story, people are going to love it. They're going to be engaged. They're going to laugh a little bit. They're going to be like, "Whoa, Robbie! Like that's a great story. Like, can you tell me tell tell me more?" Or even like once you've told it, it's going to be one of those situations like everyone watches The Office 10,000 times, right? You you continue to watch your favorite show over and over and over again because we like it. We enjoy it. It's safe. Your friends are going to be like, Robbie, tell that story again because there's a new person here and they need to hear it. Like they just love it that much, right? And for me, a go-to story is really four parts. It's adventure, adversity, triumph, and then we try to put in some humor. It's a very simple framework, right? It's basically... A, a simpler version of the hero's journey in a lot of ways, because hero's journey is very confusing and can be challenging for people to, to recreate. So I, I wanted to simplify it. But adventure is just like this, this idea that it, it, it's something exciting. Like it's going to be a cool thing that you're experiencing. Now it doesn't have to be like this great, like, you know, you traveled to New Zealand and went hiking for three months. It could be like your first trip to the grocery store, leaving your newborn child at home with a babysitter or like with your partner who you don't really trust with the baby, that could be an adventure to you if you tell it right and be really exciting. And then adversity is something that we've got to overcome, right? It's a hurdle. The reason adversity is so important in a go-to story is because we're using go-to stories to build our credibility and our likability. Credibility is only built if we show people that when we are faced with a challenge, we overcome it. Because then they're like, oh, this is a go-getter. This is somebody who's not going to just back down and fall apart. I like that kind of person. Then we show them triumph. We show them that we defeated, that we overcame it, right? And this is, again, just kind of building it. The likability comes in by telling stories. Like Stories essentially create two big emotions in people or two big chemical reactions, dopamine and oxytocin, right? And oxytocin allows people to connect. That was actually, it used to be believed only between a child and their mother. But in the 90s, they realized that it actually takes place in storytelling as well. So we get this empathy from our audience, this likability. And then the humor piece, if you can sprinkle on some humor, it doesn't have to be much. It can just be like your delivery, but you give, you give a little bit of humor on top of that. And now people are just eating out of your hand. So like go-to story, you should have one. Once you nail one, then you start developing three, five, 10. And you basically always have those in your back pocket. So if we go back to what you asked earlier, how do you create emotion when you meet somebody for the first time and you're like kind of talking to them? Once you develop your go-to stories and you have this bank, and I think every person should have a story bank, Now, when you meet somebody, you can quickly realize which story do I pull from? Let me tell them that one. And that's all of a sudden how you start creating that emotion in them because you're telling stories that they like. Oh, gotcha. Then you can see how they respond to it and figure out like what emotion, like what plane they're at and where they should become, be going if you need to kind of move them in a direction. For sure. That's great. And I like how you broke down likability as well, because that's something that like there are brands that people just love. There are people 
that people love. And then there are people who, no matter how great they are at their craft, people are just like, I just don't like this person or I can't like this brand. And so you kind of explain why that is there. Yeah. If, I mean, if you're just basically telling people I deliver great results, I mean, you might be really credible, but that's not super likable. Whereas if you tell stories about like the, the things you went through to get there or the stories of like clients that went, went through that, all of a sudden, like you're still bragging. And this is why I love stories. You get to brag without bragging. Like if we think about it, right? You really are just bragging about yourself. I've done a bunch of cool stuff. Let me tell you about it. Except be, since it's in the form of a story, people are entertained. And when people are entertained, now they don't feel like you're bragging anymore because it's enjoyable to them. And this is where if we reframe this, like everything is about connecting to our audience. Instead of me just saying how great I am, I'm trying to entertain you. So now my messaging is about you instead of about me, even though it's really about me, but I've taken you into consideration. So now you feel like we're on this shared journey. We build this connection. We build this kind of empathy between the two of us. And that's where all of a sudden I go from being just like credible to not incredible and likable. And that's what you're trying to do when you're talking to anybody, when you're marketing, when you're, you're selling, like that's, that's the key. That's a huge part of marketing is they always try and, uh, especially in copywriting, they're like, make it about the person who's reading it. Like use the word you so that the person reading it feels like they're speaking it and then they feel that emotion. And so I just finished reading a, a really interesting book. It's called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. And it's written in second person. I think it's second person. Yeah. Where the the re, the author refers to the character as you, and that was the coolest way. I, I've never read a book like that where the whole time the book is talking about you did this, you thought that, you felt this way, and it was just such a crazy way to get in the story. You you language is so powerful. Like it's it's one of the simplest things to just connect more to people is talk in you language or us language, right? Even like if you're a leader and you're trying to essentially talk to your team, talk in us language. It's our mission. It's not my mission. It's our mission. Now we're like all in this, right? So even like you want that second person plural, if you're going to be doing that as well. So there's a lot of ways to, to build that. And so many people make the mistake of just saying, I did this, I did this, I did this. And it's we just change it to we as a company, we did this right? Like it's, it's one of those simple, simple, and I hate the word hack, but it really is a hack. If you just change that simple word, I to, to you game changer. How do you suggest if someone wanted to start creating, crafting their go-to story, how have you found the best way to, I don't know, get started and like actually document that story? And, and what does that look like? Is it is it written long hand? Is it in a Google doc? Is it sticky nose places and you practice? Like, how do you actually build that story? So everyone's going to be a little bit different depending on how their brain works. So some people will just basically start telling it and, and can record it. You could use like, you know, an Otter, Descript, any of these that will record and also transcribe. So you can read it back. That's one way you can write it if you want to, if you're more comfortable with that, if you want to use sticky notes to, to structure it, that's totally cool too. I think the first piece is to analyze what, what stories are worth telling? And this is the first piece of this, like build a story bank. And to build a story bank, what you need to do is essentially categorize it, right? Work, school, life, travel, family, break down these categories and then break them down by year, right? And, and then just think back, like what interesting things have happened in 2021? What interesting things happened in 2020? 
2019. And as you get further back, you can start, you know, obviously making bigger chunks. You could be like, you know, from 2015 to 2010, what interesting things happened because, you know, memories fade. So we may, may not remember exactly what year something occurred, but by doing that exercise first, then we go back into it and we say, which ones are the best? What are the best five? Which are the ones that I want to build out? And then you treat it like a comedian does, right? Comedians practice their sets long before you ever see the full set on a massive stage or on Netflix or any of these, they are testing bits, right? Pieces of that set to see how do people take it? And the same is true for these stories, test them. Like I, I think sometimes people think that great speakers just like magically just like come up with it on the spot and have it. My best stories, my best pieces of, of speaking, like I have tested so many times when I go in for, for a closing argument, I had tested pieces of that probably 20, 30, 50 times before I ever delivered it inside of a courtroom. And the same is true for a story. Test it. Like it's okay. And sometimes it's going to fail. And you're going to be like, what, what didn't you like? What didn't make sense? What could I do better? And build it. And sometimes you're going to get enough feedback to be like, ah, I thought that'd be a good story, but it's not. Let's throw it away. Or yeah. let's, let's put it back for another day and I'll build on it. Yeah. And, and doing that process allows you to find that one best go-to story to work on first. And you'll know it. When, when you hit it, you will know what that go-to story is. And you'll just continue to refine it and build it. And then over time, you'll be like, all right, now I can move to two or three others and, and just keep repeating that process. I was going to ask, what signals are you looking for as you're practicing? So you're looking like, are people's eyes lighting up? Are they smiling? Are they leaning in? Are they like engaged, right? Really, we're looking for, are they engaged? You can tell body language, right? You know, if it, we're on video right now. So let's say, for instance, you know, they're kind of sitting back here, arms crossed and like head kind of the side, you know, not really paying attention. That's a bad sign, right? They're giving you a signal that they don't really care. Whereas if you have somebody who's, you know, like leaning in, like basically doing what I'm doing right now, they're like, oh, I, I want to know. Or like they're really open and you can see them being like, and they're, they're doing things that are showing this emotional response to the story you're telling. That's a good sign. Like I am always watching for people's reactions. Are they nodding? Are they smiling? Are they perking up? Like little things, like you can actually see where somebody will like, it's a little, like my yeah. shoulders go up and back just a little bit. That means to me that they leaned in to listen closer to what I was saying. I'm picking up on that. Now, again, that is harder for, for other people. I wouldn't focus on those super small expressions. I'd be looking more for like, are they nodding up and down with me? Are they like arms crossed or arms open? Are they smiling? Are they chuckling at things that should be getting chuckles, right? And, and you can see it in their eyes too. Eyes light up. Eyes are the easiest way to tell if someone actually likes what you're doing. The eyes cannot fake that real expression of genuine like joy and entertainment. So look at those, pay attention to them. Don't get so caught up in just yourself because at the end of the day, the point of the story is to connect to other people. And so that's your main focus. Are there any nuances that we should consider over video uh, conferencing if people are in remote situations and you want to try and be better at presenting or, or just getting to know your colleagues? Are there any tips for, for virtual storytelling? Yeah. So I'm doing a terrible job right now because uh, I'm traveling. And so I'm seated. I highly encourage people when they want to perform a story or tell a story to stand. It just changes the dynamic. You're much more open. You're able to move around. You have more dynamics to yourself. And it's just a more engaging experience for other people to take part in. So like, that'd be a big piece. If you can't though, Make sure you can at least see hands and you can see some body language so that I can tell the story using my hands, right? Yeah. Hey, we started over here and then we ended up here. I don't even know how that happened, right? 
And as I'm doing all these things, you can see me using my hands like with my with my head and touching it and moving and all these sort of pieces. The other thing too is open hands is a really nice way to signal to somebody that they're safe. It's one of these human elements that people don't realize plays a huge part. So when when hands are closed or we can't see them, our, our kind of lizard brain is telling us danger. When we can see open hands, we know that nobody's going to hurt us. So there's a reason why when I'm talking, you can see me a lot where I'm constantly having open hands. You can see them. I'm moving them a bunch. So when we want to connect with somebody, use your body. Like just because we're on video doesn't mean to like sit like a, a mannequin and just be boring and monotone and monotonous in every part of our delivery. So use, use your body language, smile, like your voice literally changes. If you smile, you get warmth and presence out of it. It is the simplest thing. And try to put the other person in a good mood. When you start, if you can put somebody in a good mood, give them a compliment, watch how Joe Rogan does on his podcast. He always introduces his guests as, as talking about either he loves their energy or he loves something that they're working on currently. <laughs> the reason being is it puts the other person in a good mood and it's genuine. He's not making it up. It's a genuine compliment. When people are put in a good mood, they're 30, 30% more likely to want to collaborate with you in some way. Well, collaboration and storytelling means that they're engaged. You're listening to you, which means you have a better chance of them sticking with your message and really embracing what you have to say. And I, and that repetition too, like he kind of mentions the thing a few times, like, oh, and back to like, back to your energy, yep. things like that. He's really, he's really good at putting people at ease and, and making them in a good mood so that they open up. Now, of course, his podcasts are super long and most people don't have that, but it's just a good reminder how we go into that interaction from the very beginning is what sets the tone for the rest of the interaction. And too many people go into an interaction in a very stiff way. Well, if we go in in a very stiff way, guess what's going to happen the rest of the conversation? It's going to be pretty stiff. It's hard to get out of that if that's the, the energy we bring in right away. If we bring in great energy and like, Stuart, it's, it's great to meet to you today. I like, I can't wait to talk. I'm looking forward to this. I've, I've been a big fan of what you're talking about. This is going to be great. Yeah. Totally different than good. Good to meet you, Stuart. Right. Like, no, like you're not going to be engaged on the second one. You're going to be like, oh, this, this is going to be a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just, we, we always need to be thinking about the frame that we're setting right off the, off the, the start. That frame really sets the tone for the way the conversation is going to play out. And it's a piece that so many people get wrong whether it's in marketing, investing, sales, it doesn't matter. Framing is a huge, huge missed opportunity by so many people. Mm, yeah. Really, really great way of putting that. So at the time of us recording this, it's like end of May, 2021. You have only been kind of teaching this performative speaking for just over a year at this point. Is that, is that correct? So in, in its form of performative speaking that is available to the public, yes. I've been teaching persuasive speaking, which is really modeled. I mean, performative speaking is modeled after what I teach um, at SMU Law School. So I've been teaching and coaching the National Mock Trial Team at SMU for about four years now. So it was about three years before I opened it up to performative speaking, which is a more general facing audience because entrepreneurs and founders started reaching out to me, asking for me to coach them just like one-on-one. And as anybody knows, one-on-one can get really challenging because you only have so much time. So you've got to figure out a way to scale scale your impact and, and manage your time. And so you start working more broadly. So yes, about a year for actual performative speaking as, as it kind of is, is titled and named. You sort of answered it for me, but that, that leap between having a job and then jumping in and, and becoming a full-time teacher, I was going to ask what the what validation you had gotten 
in order to, to, to make that commitment. You touched on it. Was there anything specific about founders and, and entrepreneurs coming to you that, that they were looking for repeatedly that you knew that you had something special? So I had, I had kind of put this together back in actually November of 2019. I had seen the opportunity and said, being a trial lawyer and closing argument is very similar to what a lot of founders and entrepreneurs need when it comes to leading a team, when it comes to raising successful fundraising rounds, and, and a lot of those pieces, I was like, I understand this world. It's it's like, you know, it's tie, it's not in the legal world, but like it's very tied, it's very similar. And so I, I kind of identified that there was this need. And then when people started coming to me, that's when I was like, okay, so I identify the need and now I'm getting validation. So then I was like, oh, we're I'm gonna go all in on this because I talk about this a lot. The the life of a trial lawyer is really about minimizing risk. And the life that I live now with performance speaking is about maximizing rewards. And it's a lot more enjoyable to me to work on maximizing rewards for people than it is just to make sure that the worst thing doesn't happen as a trial lawyer. Now, I love being a trial lawyer. Like, it's so much fun. You get to, I mean, I've learned game theory and human psychology and storytelling. Like, I call being a trial lawyer, it's competitive storytelling. It's, you know, tons of game theory and strategy and pieces and negotiation at super high level with high stakes. And I love that. But that world is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. And after 102 of them and all the terrible things I saw with murders, capital murders, child abuse cases for so long, I was like, it's just going to like eat my soul if I continue to do that day in and day out. So it was great to be able to make this transition and start helping people really chase their dreams and chase their vision. And honestly, like build companies that have the, the the potential to change the world. And I'm like, that's really exciting to me to be proactive instead of reactive, which is what you are as a trial lawyer. I want to get more into the maximizing reward side of things. But before I do, I was just wondering if there are any resources or books or anything that you found to be really useful that someone could read to figure out about game theory or or any of those ones you mentioned there. I mean, The Art of War is a great one by Sun Tzu. If you're trying to, to learn some of those ideas, that's super helpful. Also encourage anybody to read uh, anything by Robert Cialdini, whether that's Influence or Persuasion. Those are, are super valuable books. Like you, you can't go wrong on, on those. Then there's there's other kind of people out there doing good stuff. I think it's really interesting to, to pay attention to what Chris Voss does with Never Split the Difference when it comes to negotiation. In a lot of ways, that that's playing into a lot of game theory ideas as well. So I, I would encourage like those are pretty easy ones to get into right away. And then as you kind of go down that rabbit hole, you can get much more advanced if you want to. But the truth is, most people probably don't need to get super deep into that. Like a, a fairly basic understanding of that will work. And then for the people that when you need to go really deep, in all honesty, like it just makes more sense to reach out to somebody who's basically lived that and done that for a really long time because it it it's one of those things you can learn the theory, but actually living it and practicing it makes you much more aware. I mean, essentially when they say lawyers are playing like this, you know, three-dimensional chess, a trial lawyer really is like, I mean, you're playing like a chess game for years just to set up the actual chess game in the, in the trial. So like it's, it is a very strange dynamic. And and I've had like my, my number two, my ops guy asked me all the time, like, how can I learn more of this? I'm like, honestly, like it probably like go be a trial lawyer for like six, seven years <laughs> and you'll really nail it down. But I don't suggest that for many people because it's a lot of money to become a lawyer and takes a long time, but you can get a base level. Sun Tzu again is great. You can always read. I think Robert Greene has a, the 48 laws of power. That's, that's a pretty classic one as well. So 
if anyone wants more information too, they can always reach out to me after the podcast too, and I can can point them in more directions. Awesome. Yeah, no, those are those are all good resources. Back to the maximizing reward. I think that's a really important point that you touched on. What what are your rewards that, that you find like personally that you're excited for and want to strive to maximize? So I've always said like one of the, the questions that really drove me as I was doing, I, I, I do like kind of a yearly reflection in terms of like what's driving me, where do I see see my kind of life going? And the question that I, I was getting into on a regular basis is like, how can I make the biggest impact right on the world? And that seems like a very broad, nebulous question, right? But I think it's one that's super important for what I want to do. And really what I figured out was I'm not going to be the person that comes up with the next thing that fixes climate change or systemic racism or any of these like big, big issues. But what I'm really good at is helping the people who are doing that to strategize their way forward, to give them the communication tools that they need to move forward and to help them when it comes to fundraising or talking to the right people in the right way to get that messaging clear. So I realized the thing that can help me scale my impact is by helping others scale theirs. Because so many founders and entrepreneurs that I know have brilliant ideas, but communicate them terribly. Like they just don't know how to get out of their head. They don't know how to connect with people. They list feature, 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 and it moves nobody. And the thing is, my like biggest fear when I, when I see some of these people is, how many good ideas are we never going to get to hear just because they don't know how to communicate them? They don't know how to connect with an audience. They don't know how to, to reach the right people. And so that's where maximizing rewards to me means that is working with these people to scale my impact by helping them scale theirs. I mean, I would love to look back in 10, 15 years and just rattle off a bunch of companies from like, they're changing the world in this way and this way and this way, and just hit a bunch of them and be like, I worked with all of them. Like you can basically trace the work of Robbie Crabtree behind these people to, to get them there. And I think that's a really cool part that I can achieve and can really bring to, to these people who are looking for, for help when they need it most, because they're like, I've got this great idea. Why aren't people listening? I'm like, I can help you there. <laughs> Your and the last question for you here, your business was recently acquired by an education startup called On Deck. And I I'm curious to hear what was got you so excited to join them, why that was the right choice to join that team. Sure. So I think it was a really interesting uh, dynamic in that it was an opportunity. Like I said, my big vision is to scale my impact by helping other people scale theirs. Well, On Deck obviously has a great platform to do so, right? And that's their vision too. They're trying to help more founders. They're trying, they, they believe that startups have the most impact on the economy, on the, the trajectory of the world. And so like, that's a place that is very much in alignment with my mission, right? So when I was given the opportunity, it was very clear, like it allowed me to essentially pour gasoline on the fire of performance speaking and, and immediately start impacting a whole bunch more people. So, I mean, I went from 35 people in my first cohort to 113 in my second cohort. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a huge scale in just a few months time and that really was the, you know, the huge, huge added benefit of joining in on deck. Our missions are aligned and it allows me to help more people. And that, that really has played out beautifully. I mean, we just finished our, our cohort and we have our reflection and farewell tomorrow as we're recording this. And it went unbelievably well. I mean, we've got founders who have, you know, raised huge valuations who are absolutely changing, changing the world in, in the things that they're doing. 
And I got to work with them because I went into on deck. And it's also been really cool because the on deck situation was, you know, I still retain the IP. I still retain a lot of these, these functions. And so it looks a little bit more like an aqua hire than it does a true acquisition because those are my ideas and I continue to teach it. But it allows us both on deck and myself to benefit in a way that makes sense for both of us to reach more people and help them. And, and that's been the cool part. I mean, as we finished, there were a number of founders who we did these mini TED Talks in the last week. And the thing I kept hearing repeatedly over and over and over was, I dreaded speaking when I came into the course. Now I really enjoy it. And I can't wait to have more opportunities. Like that is a life-changing transformation for somebody to go through. And like, these are super smart people. Like these are exactly the people I wanted to work with where I'm like, you have world-changing ideas. You just need to get comfortable saying them out loud and communicating them. And now they're doing so. So I'm like, it's, it's just super cool experience. And I've, I've been nothing but grateful to on deck for the opportunity. And I know we delivered a ton of value in this last cohort. So just, just really excited for what on deck is doing, what performance speaking is doing and kind of what the future holds for, for everybody. Amazing. Well, huge congratulations. That seems like a really awesome partnership. Where can uh, people go to find out more about that program and, and get a hold of you? Yeah. So best place to, to get a hold of me is a couple social media platforms. So you can find me on Twitter. It's at Robbie Crab. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Robbie Crab. I respond to DM. So if you want to touch base with me, please do so there. The easiest place to get a hold of me via email is Robbie at RobbieCrab.com. That's my personal email. That's the one that just gets checked the most in all honesty, because I have too many email accounts these days. And I just finally had to triage and be like, one's going to get the most attention. And then I'll, I'll send some links as well to you after the fact. Uh, I have a Notion page that basically outlines what's coming next for the program in terms of, of where it's going because we just finished this cohort. So we'll, we'll make some evolution changes like you always do in a program because you just want to keep getting it better and better and better for each person that comes through it. And Besides that, like I'm always available for anybody who wants to reach out and chat or has questions or they can read my writing on RobbieCrabtree.com where I write and blog very, very often on storytelling, on looping, on how to start and finish a talk, like lots of things around speaking, lots of things around the creator economy, lots of things around sales as well, which oftentimes overlap marketing. I, I think a lot of my writing tends to be like marketing and sales with with some speaking kind of intertwined throughout all those pieces. Yeah. Yeah. They they work well together. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Robbie. Tons of great stuff in there. Well, Stuart, I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. This has been a blast. Awesome. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.